Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you live on tape from the Jersey Shore. Delighted to have Shira Ovaday from the New York Times coming to us, I think, from her coat closet in Queens. Welcome, Shira. Thank you. Yes, live from my coat closet. Thank you for crawling into the closet to make this podcast. I happen. even have a stool in here, so this is really, this is high tech. I would expect nothing less from a technology columnist from the New York Times. I've known Shira for a long time because she used to work at the Wall Street Journal and wrote about tech and media there. And then she went to Bloomberg and had a column there that I sort of described as my favorite indie band because I thought it was awesome and I don't think enough people read it. And now she's at the New York Times writing about tech. So everyone reads her. Thanks for coming on. What's the name of your column and more important, your newsletter that people are consuming? Uh, the the newsletter is called On Tech with Shira Oviday. And comes out how often a week? Uh, it, well, it used to be five days a week and just recently it is now three days a week. And both so as an, an email day. newsletter and it's published online at nytimes.com. I want to talk to you about writing a newsletter and some of the mechanics of that, and we can talk about it at the end. But just before we dive into what you're writing about, do you have a sense of how big your audience is right now? I have a sense, but I don't know that I'm allowed to say it out loud, so I will not get myself in trouble and say it out loud. Okay. Let's put it this way. Who are you writing a New York Times tech column for? Is it for people who are deep into tech? Is it people who aren't interested in tech or are a little bit interested in tech? I, I have my thoughts. Answer, so I'm curious yeah, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, look, is. I think ideally the answer is yes to all of those. You know, this was not my uh, conception, but when some of the bosses at the Times uh, and I talked about um, starting this new kind of newsletter, they conceived it as, you know, a kind of classic New York Times big tent um, kind of audience, right? So ideally, we, I and we want both people who don't think they're interested in tech and, you know, wouldn't know a TensorFlow from a, I don't know, I was trying to make a pun. I'll stop there. I was going to say a RAM from a ROM, but that's oh, there we really go. Something me. like that. Yeah. You, you know, people who don't think they're interested in tech, but obviously uh, are smart, informed people and care about the world. And right now, understanding technology's impact on the world is part of being uh, you know, sort of an informed, educated citizen. And hopefully we're also reaching the people who care deeply about technology and sort of want to understand it better through my eyes. I think you're doing a great job. Again, I'm, I'm a longtime fan. And also because people come up to me and go, hey, have you read Shira's newsletter? It's great. You should have her on the podcast, which is a, usually a good sign. That's great. That someone is Very doing glad to hear that. something great. So I want to talk to you about some of the stuff you've been writing about recently. And you've got a column out today. It's called Why Can't Text Fix Everything? And this is a theme you've, you've now taken a couple of cracks at, because I think you did one similar to this uh, last fall. And I think you've laid out the thesis pretty well in the title. But tell me what you're, what you're trying to get at here. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that I've been struggling with, honestly, for most of the uh, of the 16 or 18 months of the pandemic, which is, look, if you think about 
some of the sort of capital B big problems that we've had to face collectively in the last 18 months, things like this uh, this coronavirus pandemic, this um, reckoning about systemic racism, a highly contentious election and disputed aftermath. If you think about all of those things, tech was like tangentially important, if it was important at all, in all of those things, right? And so it's just made me think we've had a decade or so of technology promising to change the world. And in many ways it has, right? But is it really effective or impotent um, in these really thorny challenges that we're now facing collectively um, as citizens of the United States and the world? So I like this column and this idea for for two reasons. One is the meta part, which the technology column is saying, uh, tech, what are you going to do? Maybe not so much, but also because more practically, and you know, you and I are in a specific corner of the world, but we have the sense that this view is, is expanded beyond uh, people we talk to is that technology is everywhere and omnipresent and it's in everything and it does good things and it's in bad things, but it's fully baked in. Um, and everything we touch has technology in it, whether we know about it or not. And in fact, a lot of what we're trying to do is to sort of understand how some of the tech we don't see is actually working even when we're not aware of it. Um, and there's also a triumphant, triumphant, whatever adjective goes with triumphant, uh, version of this, which is the Mark Andreessen view of the world. In fact, he just wrote about this when he, when he, when Andreessen Horowitz put out their new blog uh, a couple months ago, the headline is technology saves the world where he says, you know, the pandemic has proved specifically that the technology is great. It gave us the vaccines, um, you know, on, on, on all the standard things we've been reading for the last 16 months. It allowed us to keep keep in touch. It allowed us to waste our time when we weren't employed. It allowed us to do work, et cetera. What do you say to an Andreessen who looks around and says, you know, everything that is good about this world and some bad stuff is coming to you from tech? Um, that would have seemed to be kind of a an edge argument a while ago, but now it seems like it's standard. And you know what? I think Mark's right. Uh, you know, that, that thesis that he had, I can't even remember how many years ago, the, the software is mm-hmm. eating the world thesis. I mean, I think he was largely correct about that, that it is true that And maybe this is sort of a sign of the success of technology is that we now take it more for granted, right? Because it is infused in everything. And and you and I, Peter, I know we roll our eyes at, you know, every company in the world describing themselves as a tech company, right? If you sell Mm -hmm. dog biscuits, um, somehow you're a tech company. But lease office space, you're a tech company. Yes, exactly. If you lease office space. But it's also... I mean, it's not entirely incorrect when companies say that because technology is no longer this, you know, shiny thing that we take out of a box. It's sort of literally in the air um, that we breathe. It's it's infused in every molecule of our life. That does show that technology has successfully um, become an inescapable part of our lives. And it has, of course, allowed us, allowed many of us to keep working and living and socializing and and buying stuff and going to school and, and going to church and doing all these other things about life. And, um, you know, that is 
that is a, a victory of the power of technology. But again, if I think about these collective action problems, um, the things that, that are, are really thorny, if it's climate change or racial justice or healthcare educational systems that work for everyone or health, uh, you know, a pandemic and healthcare, it just feels like, uh, you know, th this requires hard choices and smart, difficult policy decisions by lots of humans. And I don't know that technology is very good at helping tackle collective action problems. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, in the sort of first blush of Facebook and Twitter, there was this optimistic view that it was going to, these things just by existing, were going to help change the world. And you point to the Arab Spring. And, and now we obviously have a much more complex view of, of what Twitter and Facebook and the like do and don't do for us. Um, there's still the Mark Zuckerberg argument that says, hey, there'd be no George Floyd uh, uh, racial reckoning if someone hadn't uh, taken their cell phone and posted that video. I believe it was a Facebook video initially. And that's true, too. Another version of this optimism um, comes from Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey who yesterday tweeted out that blockchain is going to unite America, a divided country, and then it said parenthetically, and then the rest of the world too. And the great thing about Jack is he's probably 100% serious. There's a 5% chance that maybe he's joking. Uh, but there still is a very much a, a, a tech optimist view of the world that says that technology and humans innate sort of capacity to help solve problems you put those two things together it will eventually win out and and eventually we get progress from that even if we zigzag uh down the line um and i think you and and probably i say eh, collective action you can't solve with tech necessarily you can you can help tech can help it but it can't fundamentally change human frailty yeah and summing that up I think that's right. And, and honestly, I wish there were room to reconcile both our, uh, y yours and mine, kind of, I don't know, grumpy journalist pessimism of the world or realism about the world and the optimism that I think is real. I mean, I, I still remember that feeling when I moved, first moved to the Bay Area um, after 2011. And it's not all fake, right? It's not just pointless greed dressed up as as optimistic boosterism. I think there really is an optimism. There was an optimism, at least then, that um, these technology tools were positive agents for change. And again, that's true. But it's also true that every benefit comes with downsides. And, you know, I, I sort of joke, have joked sometimes that I wish tech companies um, were required to hire chief pessimism officers you know, like somebody in positions of authority whose job it is to basically say, well, what if that doesn't work? Or what if X happens instead? Mm -hmm. What if we're wrong? Um, what's the worst that could happen? Is technology really the right thing? Should we do this at all, basically? It's funny because I do think that there's a bunch of people who are involved in tech who have, who are both who both are, are ideological and, and very optimistic and have that, that this can go wrong attitude, but they often use that lens about government. So I was uh, talking to some folks the other day about uh, Apple and its effort to crack down on child porn by in part looking at what's on your phone, but not really looking at it. And their argument was like, this is a definition of a slippery slope. And uh, no one wants to ch children to be endangered. But once you allow Apple and or the government to look at your phone, 
you know, you, you can see you can see where all this goes. And to them, this is like a, uh, and they they're quite serious about it. Like this is a very big deal, and it's it's very dark, um, and they can see the downside of this immediately. Whereas I think some of those people would also have a hard time understanding how some of the products they make or use or run can have negative uh, side effects. Um, and to, be, to me, that's interesting. It's very clear to them to see like why government overreach is bad. Um, but they can't understand why someone might have a problem with their tech being sort of un, largely unregulated. Well, I think I'm sure there, I mean, I don't know the specifics of, of Apple's um, policy decisions on these child sexual abuse images, but I'm sure there, there were dissenting opinions inside the company and there was a vigorous, I hope there was a vigorous debate about it. But, you know, the, I think the question is always um, uh, how much of that emerges in the end product, right? And with this Apple thing, I mean, I, I was sort of um, captivated by Alex Stamos, you know, the former uh, chief information security officer of, of Facebook, who had this long Twitter thread about the the Apple policy, basically saying, look, there is this inevitable and difficult trade-off of uh, encryption technologies that keep people secure, safe and secure from uh, prying eyes, either either governments, if you're you know a dissident or somebody else who just doesn't want the government to peer into your personal messages, or if you want to avoid you know criminals and fraud and 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 mm-hmm. other bad guys, um, and that there is an inevitable trade-off that the you make messaging and 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 any kind of web service more secure from prying eyes, it also invites um, abuse, including abuse by the worst actors you can imagine, um, child predators, terrorists, things like that. And what is the right balance? Can there be an appropriate balance between those two goods, uh, privacy and public safety and security? And I think Samos's point was basically that there's been this robust discussion in the industry about striking the right balance, and Apple just kind of opted out of that and did their own thing. Right, and that may show something about the arrogance of some of these companies that they feel like they're smart and that they're responsible for making their own decisions. And those things are true, but obviously there's a lot of expertise outside of those companies too. And even though it's slower, right, maybe that's the better thing to do. Right, and then there's also the well, who is going to make these decisions? Or, or is it should be Apple by itself? Should it be Apple with a coalition of other computer companies? Should our elected officials have something to say about this? And you know, I'm disappointed in my government all the time. But if I had to choose between the market setting, you know, letting it sort itself out and, and maybe elected officials that I have a say in, in putting in office or taking out of office, I'd, I'd like them to be involved as well. You have two other columns recently that, that get at sort of this push pull that, that tech brings us. One is about Facebook and what is the real responsibility for the, the state we're in today. Uh, and the other is, is kind of similar. It's is, is can you have innovation without hucksters? Let's talk about Facebook first. Um, and again, I think I think the reason you're honest is because I agree with all your opinions. But but you're basically saying, hey, let's Facebook's responsible for a lot of stuff, but they're not responsible for everything. And when we make them responsible for everything, we take everyone else off the hook. Want to just spell that out for me? Yeah, and I think this was specifically the the specific piece you were talking about was about this um, tug of war with the White House mm-hmm. over. Um, you know, vaccine, misleading information about vaccines online. And to what extent, and I think there is a, a legitimate debate now, and, and there should be um, a nuanced view of 
why do people make the decisions that they make, whether that's about um, getting vaccinated with the coronavirus vaccines or about believing in this in this lie that President Trump um, was the rightful winner of the election. You know, I, I think it's easy and understandable to say there's a bunch of uh, garbage on Facebook or elsewhere online. It's either difficult or it's difficult to kind of tamp that down. And Facebook um, arguably hasn't done enough to do that. And so, um, I mean, nobody's saying it's all Facebook's fault, but I think Facebook bears, uh, it takes a, a lot of blame. And again, some of that is deserved, but I do wonder if, um, you know, Renee DiResta, who sort of studies um, vaccine misinformation and other kinds of misinformation, talks about this like whole of society problems, right? That there's not like one bad tweet that makes you think, I don't need a coronavirus vaccine. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Shira. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And we're back. It's Facebook and it's Rupert Murdoch, right? And it's Donald Trump. But is there something about 2021 and the fact that so many people are so resistant to getting a vaccine that can literally save their lives? And we don't recall having this sort of anti-vax debate about penicillin. I mean, obviously, there's always been people who've been resistant to this stuff. It seems like tech, if we if we include cable television and ways of disseminating that stuff as, as tech, then yeah, that is a tech problem. That is, that's not just, I mean, maybe not just Facebook, but that there is something about our information systems that makes it more difficult to get good information to, to balance out the bad stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I sort of think of it as, a, as an accelerant of everything, right? It's an accelerant of good information. Uh, these online communication tools where people can say, broadcast anything to billions at the push of a button. And it's an accelerant of bad information. And I just don't know if um, you can tackle a complex problem without looking at root causes about, well, let's see, if people have lots of good reasons to mistrust the healthcare system and government that feel like I haven't had healthcare and every time I go to the doctor, it costs me gazillions of dollars and the doctor treats me like garbage or I've never seen a public health worker in my life um, except now when they want something from me, right? Um, You know, there's all kinds of root causes of mistrust in authority that don't get solved if you just blame Facebook. So I'm just saying blame Facebook and. Yes. I mean, I think one thing we had the version of this after the 2016 election, it must be Facebook's fault. Um, either because they misled people or they allowed the Russians to do it. It's is Mark Zuckerberg's fault. We have Donald Trump. You know, I think one of the things that we're always very uncomfortable thinking or and certainly saying out loud is, y- you know who did this? Uh, tens of millions of Americans decided to do this. And so if, you know, if you think they're all deluded or made a terrible decision, and I do, like, 
you have to live with that. And that's actually much more uncomfortable than thinking Mark Zuckerberg is doing evil things in, in California. It's that so many of your fellow citizens are so far apart from you in the way they view the world. Um, and sitting with that is very, very difficult. It is. Um, and it's much easier to point at Murdoch or Zuckerberg or blame your villain. Yeah, who, I are, mean, I, who are, by the way, villains. Yeah, I mean, I will cases. also um, give a shameless shout out to uh, my colleague's book about Facebook. Um, Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong wrote this great book, uh, An Ugly Truth, that digs basically into the last five years of Facebook, um, including the 2016 disinformation campaign. And I think, you know, even if you have followed that that history, that recent history closely in the pages of the New York Times and elsewhere, I think it's still illuminating about the ways that, you know, Facebook's choices really influence the world. And again, not just in the United States, but in Myanmar and um, in in U.S. foreign policy and now in our healthcare policy. It's just, it is an enormous amount of power in the hands of really one person, right? Mark, Mark Zuckerberg basically is the de facto dictator of Facebook. And it's a it's a lot of power in the hands of one man. Yes, which he frequently says he doesn't want. He says, I don't want to be the decision maker. Well, I don't want to do this. This is I how shouldn't we structured be, I, the company. This is a government should be doing this. The Facebook yeah. oversight board should be doing this. And I get very frustrated with that argument. Um, and and look, he's not wrong. I mean, I, I do wonder to what extent some of the frustrations about uh, about Facebook and, and Google and Twitter and others is really a frustration with inaction by Washington, right? That we don't have a comprehensive federal privacy legislation, you know, with, that the members of Congress kind of hammer Facebook and, and Google and Twitter and others over what they perceive as shortcomings in taking down too much or too little content, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. And yet, you know, they haven't been effective in passing laws overseeing those companies. Um, and that is their job. Their job is to sort of uh, make guardrails around corporate behavior and that say, this is where the bright lines are. And they yeah, haven't really I do. Done I do that. think that, that, I mean, I'm, I'm still remain skeptical. We're going to see significant change coming out of Washington for a bunch of structural reasons. But also, I just think that some of some of what we want to fix isn't fixable, right? Like a lot of the anger about Facebook is that we find a lot of people found them believe they helped elect Donald Trump. But you can't create legislation. You can't create oversight that's meant to prevent Donald Trump getting reelected, right? That's that's not going to work that way. And and a lot, you know, like there's a lot of people who don't really care about privacy that much, or they might say they care about it, but that's not really the problem they're trying to solve. So we'll see. Um, one more, one more column topic, and then and then uh, we can move on to, to more invigorating, not invigorating, upbeat stuff. Innovation inviting huckster. And you, by the way, your columns are great. They're very readable. They're not depressing like this conversation might seem. Um, innovation. If you're going to have innovation, do you have to have hucksters? And my answer is yes, because you always have hucksters wherever there's money to be made. And if there's innovation, there's going to be money and there's going to be money spent and money misappropriated. And why not participate in that? Um, so you were, you were, you were thinking about the WeWork guys and you were thinking about the guy whose name I forgot, who said he was making electric trucks, but really it was just a truck that someone was pushing. Right. Trevor um, Milton, off, the, the Nikola yeah. founder, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, my, it's again, one of these topics that I sort of keep coming back to in various forms, but it's basically 
we have created a system where there's a lot of incentives for entrepreneurs and companies to come up with the most ambitious idea possible, right? And, and there's financial reasons for that, right? There's way more money um, just sloshing around out there looking for places to invest than there are good ideas to invest in. And they want they want world-changing ideas. They no want world-changing ideas, invest in a yes. better ice cream parlor. If it's, that's you know, right. That's right. It, it's boring. Nobody wants to invest in a company that says, you know, we're going to make it slightly easier for hair salons to book appointments. They say we are, I don't know, transforming the nature of work and hair. I, I made that up. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is... Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, financial and cultural incentives to be as ambitious as possible, right? And we can see the downsides of that. You get people like Adam Newman at WeWork, who basically takes a office subleasing company and imagines himself as sort of president of the world, as somebody who's you know cha- going to change the world's consciousness, and I don't know, own all the real estate in the United States and uh, all the apartment complexes in the United States. Anyway, you, you get these people who dream too big and crash and burn. But I wonder if, you know, that same sort of quality where there's lots of incentives to dream the most ridiculous uh, dreams possible, if that is also the same kinds of perverse incentives that do deliver real world-changing ideas, if, uh, you know, Tesla and other electric cars and uh, Google and Amazon. Again, there are problems with all of those companies, but they are truly transformative ideas that at one point seemed ridiculous. And there's a difference between saying, my company that sells books over the internet is one day going to be transformative and change the way all Americans do all their shopping and all, everyone around the world, even though you haven't built that yet. There's a difference between getting ahead of your skis and saying you, you something's coming, but it hasn't been quite, you know, Steve Jobs introduced the Macintosh in a, in a, in a, in a national TV ad, but he hadn't finished building the Macintosh yet, which is a, for the problems that people were making the Apple versus, versus saying my blood testing company can test your blood for various diseases and it just doesn't do that and never will. Right. One, one is, one is a little bit of puffery. We accept that. Uh, the other is, is fraud and you can go to jail for that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously there's a line between fraud and puffery and, um, Theranos and, and Elizabeth Holmes, I think that's going to be the crux of the, the lawsuit about Elizabeth Holmes. But y- yeah, there is a line, but I, I, I wonder if the, you know, the incentives um, for the kind of way out over your skis, um, Elizabeth Holmes possibly uh, allegedly criminal activity, if it's the same kind of um, incentives and mindset that also can deliver wildly successful good outcomes. And how do we get basically more of the good outcomes and less of the Theranos? Or do we just accept that it's baked in and and we'll we'll accept a little bit of fraud and a little bit of money wasting? I mean, you mentioned WeWork. I had Elliot Brown who wrote the great WeWork book with with Maureen Farrell. Um, And they show over and over I mean, there's no one has accused that company of fraud. We all kind of assumed there would be some. And there was maybe some disclosure issues. But basically, everyone who was giving them money was eyes wide open. And if they weren't, it was their choice not to be eyes wide open. And the reason they went along with it is they thought there was going to be a reward for it. And they have incentives to do that. 
I'm sort of amazed, frankly, with the amount of money sloshing around that there isn't more outright fraud or, or stuff that's right up against the edge. Um, and I've talked to various investors over the years, and some of them will say, there's more than you think. It's just that we don't really have an incentive to tell people about it when we figure it out. And I think there's probably a bunch that we don't see. But even, even if you account for that, you would think there'd be many more people who are outright scamming people. And instead, what we hear about is sort of the, when we hear, think about scammers, we think about, you know, Nigerian email fraudsters and stuff like that. We don't think about people taking the piles of money that are sloshing around the valley and elsewhere and just absconding with it. And I'm shocked there isn't. I'm shocked there are not more Theranoses or fire festivals um, that we're hearing about left and right. Yeah, I mean, good news, I guess. There could be <laughs> <laughs> way more scammers than there are. It could be much worse. Um, let me let me ask you about what how you're actually making the newsletter and, and and what that creation is like. You talked about the idea that it's a big tent. Describe a difference between what you were doing at Bloomberg and what you're doing at the Times, because I think it's instructive. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of a a difference, a little bit of a difference of scope. That again, I think I have been basically a financial journalist for all of my career and. That is still the core of what I do and how my brain works, right? I think in terms of numbers and financial incentives mm -hmm. and things like that. But I think writing this newsletter at the Times was an opportunity to think beyond the numbers as well, which was appealing. I mean, not that, I mean, I did that at Bloomberg too, but uh, I think this is just a little bit more of a tech through the lens of people and how it is shaping the world. Like you would include EBITDA in your Bloomberg columns. Is, Probably. Is EBITDA shown up in a, in a, a New York Times on tech newsletter? I, I mean, I, I... Probably not. I would hesitate to say no in case you find one example, but yeah. no. I'm asking because uh, I'm trying to do a version of this and I find it pretty difficult often, in part because I think the business stuff is just fundamentally interesting and it's one of the reasons I did it for many, many years. Um, and I think avoiding talking about business is, is actually counterproductive. But do you find yourself going, oh, this is a really good story, but it's too niche or it's too specific. I can't, I, this is not a New York Times newsletter column. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, WeWork might be an example of that. Like I wrote gazillions of WeWork columns at Bloomberg and I think some of them were really good and I was um, happy with them. But I haven't, I, I just, couldn't haven't yet found a way to write about this sort of WeWork um, craziness uh, and and Elliot Maureen's new book for this newsletter. I still may, but it does. Yeah, th these kind of I, I do think about the why would readers? How do I make readers? And you're thinking about it a lot. You're tweeting out literally page by page <laughs> as you're reading it, and you're taking notes yeah, in the margins. So you're true. you're thinking hard about it. Yeah. Um, and it does seem like. There's something there for it, but maybe it's that it's it, there just isn't enough of a parable for you to tell. Is uh, is there a great topic that you want to get into a column and haven't? Is there another one like that where you haven't been able to figure out how to how to present it to a Times audience? I think yeah, and, and to be fair, I mean I think that sort of huckster piece that I wrote, the huckster newsletter mm -hmm. that I wrote, was in part me thinking about WeWork um, and others. But yeah, other things that I haven't been able to. Probably nothing that I want to say out loud because I, I okay. will still want to do it. Uh, I, I mean, I wrote a while ago in a, I mentioned a while ago in a newsletter that I wanted to find more ways to write about these sort of, um, I don't know what you call them, these 
largely unseen people who make the internet possible, right? Whether it's Reddit moderators or Wikipedia editors or, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people have written about the, the content moderators at, at Facebook mm-hmm. and other companies and some of the demands on their job. But, you know, there's all these people that we, you know, salespeople who sell software. There's just all these people that we don't get as much attention as, like, tech engineers and product managers at big companies who are making it possible for the internet to exist as it is, right? And it might be like the person who manages your neighborhood next door group. And, you know, these people are the ones that really shape our experience online for better and for worse. And they probably don't get as much attention as they should. I've talked to a bunch of newsletter writers over the last year, and a lot of that is because of Substack and the interest in sort of what they're making and who's funding them and what kind of topics they talk about. A lot of them will talk about um, feedback they get from their readers. Is that something you get from the at the times? Are people writing to you? Are you responding to them? Or are you, are you at a scale where you, you can't even use an inbox for that? No, no. Uh, we, we get quite a bit of reader feedback, and I think we try to reflect that in the newsletter, we we had a call out, this was last year, for readers' sort of favorite technology in the pandemic or otherwise. And I think people wrote in with some, like, really great and heartwarming responses. But, yeah, I do admire the newsletter writers who I think do a much better job with community. Thinking about people like, like Ryan Broderick, the Garbage Day writer, who has sort of a discord um, with other newsletter writers, but you know the, the that's really like a tip sheet for him, and and he features stuff that readers put into that Discord all the time. And I'm not, I haven't been as good at, at doing that yet. Well, I like what you do. I think the Times likes what you do because I think coincidentally they're going to announce today when you hear this podcast they're they're rolling out a whole new slew of newsletters. You describe yourself as a newsletter writer, sort of not a New York Times columnist. Does the stuff show up in print or in the sort of digital edition? Or is it only, can I only get it for a newsletter? I should know this. No, it's it's both. I mean, it's it's a, it lives as an email newsletter mm-hmm. that that lives in your inbox. And it's also republished more or less verbatim every day on NewYorkTimes.com and selectively in the print pages of the New York Times. And is that is that still a thing where where you, you, all all forms of media are equal, but getting in the print edition is still the thing that is the best and is what you're supposed to Instagram, or have you been dissuaded from doing that? I mean, I haven't seen a print copy of the New York Times since February 2020, so I certainly have not been Instagramming any <laughs> New York Times print editions in which I appear. That is the correct answer. All right, so here's to seeing you uh, in real life in the same building, maybe across from a table, maybe very close to each other, um, and seeing print editions and and all of that um, in the, I was going to say near future, but maybe medium near future. How about that? I hope so, yes. Thank you, Shira. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Shira Ovide. By popular demand, we had Shira Ovide on. That's right. You could just ask to have people on, and they will come on the show sometimes. It works great. You can try it. Uh, thanks to Joel and Jelani for editing producing. Thanks to our sponsors for letting us bring you this show for free. Thanks to you guys for listening and telling other people you like listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. <laughs>